welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Please open up a Bible with me, if that's all right, to the book of John, chapter 19. New Testament, gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We've been preaching through this book for the better part of this year, and now we finally come to chapter 19. We are almost near the end of this whole book, and we are calling this part of the series, More Life. And the reason for it is one of the most prominent themes in the book of John is not just bios, the Greek life, like I'm breathing, I'm existing, I'm still here, basically. But, you know, that's like the third term summed up for people. I'm alive, basically. That's the best news I can give you. But this book speaks about the Greek zoe, zoe life, abundant life, life to the full, God quality life. And more than 40 times, John says, this is the kind of life that he believes you can only find in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And today we come to the death of Jesus. So... Jesus is arrested, he's taken into custody, he's interrogated by both the Jewish high council and the Roman governor called Pilate at that stage, and then he's just brutally tortured. And John chooses, other than the other gospel writers, he chooses not to focus on a lot of the gory details, he wants to keep it to a minimum because he's got other things in mind that he wants to focus on, but basically Jesus is beaten to a pulp. And he is scourged with this nine-tailed whip until his back is just shreds, basically. And so the Bible says he's been fully prepared, John says, for now, the crucifixion. So he's bleeding profusely. He is basically in a state of medical shock. And still, by Roman customs, now the victim has to carry the vertical or horizontal aspect of this cross, this wooden cross, on his back all the way to his own death. And that's where we pick up the story today. John 19, 16. Then he handed him over to be crucified, And then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Verse 28, it says, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. And so a jar full of sour wine was sitting there and they fixed it on a sponge full of um, a branch of hyssop and they held it up to his mouth. And then in verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Verse 31. So since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. For the Sabbath was a special day. So they requested that Pilate have these men's legs broken. So to to speed up this process of death and have their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. And he, speaking about John himself, he who saw this, he was at the foot of the cross, has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony, John's testimony says it's true, and he knows he is telling the truth. Verse 40. And so they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with fragrant spices, according to the burial customs of the Jews. And there was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was placed in the garden, and no one had been placed in it yet. And so there they placed Jesus. Whew, heavy stuff for a Sunday morning. You know, the Jewish historian Josephus, having seen many men brutally crucified in the assault on Jerusalem by the Emperor Tiberius, he would often call this, this specific death by crucifixion, he would call it the most wretched of deaths. The most wretched of deaths. And so my question to you this morning is, what do you think Jesus thinks that he is accomplishing in this most violent and wretched and sad deaths? What do you think he thinks he is accomplishing? What is he giving to us? What is he bringing to the world in this horrendous moment? Let me take us back a couple of weeks ago, John 14, verse 27. Absolutely contrasted to the horror of this moment, Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. And I do not give as the world gives. So don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. John 16, repeats this just before he's about to be crucified. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. But be courageous, for I have conquered the world. Guys, this is, <laughs> this is mind-blowing. This man who is absolutely beaten to a pulp on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, he says, the reason I go through all of that, you know what you find in this most evil of moments? Peace. Peace. I give to you. And he's not saying the kind of peace when everything in life just works. No, he says, you know what? Life will be unfair. Life will be broken. Life will be tough. But the kind of peace that I have, I come to give you. It's the kind of peace that can be there in spite of what he's saying you will go through at times. Now, can I just be honest with you? Even this morning, Charlie and I, we were just joking about the fact that I know that if you know anything about Christianity, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've seen Christian people from a distance, you would say like, it almost feels like one of those things that you have to have. You have to be like a, a peace-filled person even when life goes awry. Can I tell you, I, as Joe, I battle with that. I battle with that because life is often not fair. It is broken. It is horrendous. And often when I'm confronted with those things, you know what my reaction is? It's not peace. I'll give you a couple of examples. Those who know a bit of our story, you'll know that Benjamin, our son, he's got genetic hearing loss. And just two days ago, he was just getting ready for school. I was sitting there just finishing up a couple of admin things and he's adjusting just his two hearing aids and he, just for a moment, he just looks at himself in the mirror and he turns to me and he says, Dad, he's about seven years old now, he says, Dad, will there ever be a time where my hearing will just be good? 
And I'm telling you, I had to fight back the tears that morning. And you know what? I should have had peace. You know what I did not have? I did not have peace. The last couple of weeks, I've realized that I have been over-investing in News 24 articles, and it's everything from, from ESCOM, and it's politics, and it's, it's just, you know, here we go with, with just more inflation, and here this is happening, and, and here is the ANC breaking in two, and, and here's the future of our country, and, and all these things I read, you know what I experience? I don't experience peace. The last couple of weeks, I didn't have to preach as much, so I over-invested just in more coffees and, and connections with some of the people in our church. And you know what? Many of us, some of you guys sitting here today, but many of the people, the partners in this church, are going through such difficult things. Life is beating them to a crisp at the moment, and some of our partners are even just making incredibly poor choices, isolating themselves, trying to do this alone. And I walk away from those coffees often, and I don't have peace. One of my good friends from high school, we've known each other forever. And he is the kind of guy that I look up to as a young Christian in my early 20s. I took so much strength from this guy. Just two weeks ago, we had a conversation that he wants the two of us over the next couple of months to walk something of a road of just investigating and, and investing in faith because he says, I'm basically at the place where I think I'm an atheist now. I don't think I believe any of this stuff anymore. And I don't, in those moments when I put down the phone, I don't have peace. I don't know if you guys ever feel like that, but I feel like that. So what then? Maybe it's just my temperament, maybe it's my history. I know that I can be someone who can be quite anxious about things. I can get stressed out about things. You know what the opposite of peace is? It's words like agitation and, and anguish and anxiety and apprehensiveness and uneasiness and worry. And then I read Galatians 5.22 says that when the Spirit of God takes up residence in you when you become a Christian, he says just the, the change that you experience naturally as a Christian day by day, it says the fruit of that. You know what one of those things is? He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So here, we ask the question today, as we've had every single week, just a question about Zoe life. I just want to ask the question today, can my life be filled with peace? Can my life be filled with peace? Because Jesus says, man, this world is not going to be fair. It's not going to be whole yet. We're not in the new creation yet. It's not always going to go your way. But yet, can my life be filled with peace? And I think the answer we're getting is that from the most horrendous, evil, and broken moment, we find peace. So three simple questions. The first is this. What kind of peace is this? What kind of peace is this that we find in this broken moment? You see, peace, one aspect of peace can be peace between nations, between people. You're not fighting with your sibling. There's peace, right? Another aspect of peace can just be that you're having a quiet moment. Just moms when all the kids have finally left you alone. I have peace. Or it can just be an emotion. In this moment of my life, in this season, I just have peace. How many people have heard Christians make bad decisions when I just have peace about things? So, but we'll leave that alone. But this is not the peace that this scripture is speaking about today. It's speaking about this fourth dimension of peace. It is the state of peace. Having a life filled. It's the posture of peace. It's when I have such internal peace <laughs> that my life has become filled from the inside out with peace. 
In fact, the biblical definition often in the Old Testament called shalom, this, this peace, one scholar calls it total well-being, wholeness, and security associated with what? With God's presence amongst his people. Total well-being, wholeness, and security, peace. You know what the difference is between having a peaceful life? Maybe this morning you're saying, that's all I want in the third term of 2022. I just want a peaceful life. You know what the difference is between a peaceful life and a life filled with peace? The first is something that comes from the outside in. When life is going my way, I have a peaceful life. When the money is you know, up in, in the green and when the politics are working and load shedding is at least at stage one, you know, then I have a peaceful life. So it's, it's, it's peace because of, right? But having a life filled with peace, this passage is speaking about, is very different because it's not peace that comes from the outside in, it's an inside out peace. It's peace in spite of, not peace because of, Peace because of is that my, my marriage, my, my health, my money, my kids, my, my, my career is going my way. So yes, peaceful, peace because of. But Jesus says, no, it won't be like that always. Christianity's promise is not a peaceful life. It is a life filled with peace. It's peace in spite of. In spite of stage eight, in spite of recession, in spite of losing your job or your partner getting cancer or your kids making all the decisions you never wanted them to make, it's peace in spite of. That's all throughout the Bible. I can't go through all of that today, but let me give you one example. So Peter, we preached through this book two years ago. Peter writes to this absolutely oppressed group of people that had become Christians and they've been scattered out of their homes. They are persecuted by the Roman government. And he's writing to these people who do not have a peaceful life. Imagine being forced out of your home. You have no retirement annuity. You have no you know, job. You have nothing. You're just forced onto the streets of Pretoria with your family because of your Christian faith. And what does he write to these people? Second Peter 1 verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Through what? Through life turning around? Through you receiving everything you lost? Through things just going your way again? No, through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what the kind of peace is that Peter is hoping for them, that he's hoping for you and for me, the kind of peace that Jesus says, I wanna come and establish that in your life. It's almost like we all have seen this picture of of an iceberg where it's just like the little piece of the iceberg that's sticking out of the surface of the water, but the mass of the iceberg is found underneath. And often we say, God, that's what I'm hoping for. That surface level peace. God, just, just fix my life, Lord, please. My finances, my relationships, my marriage, if that can just work. But God says, guess what? Life will always affect that little part of the peace of your life. But I want to come and give you the kind of peace that sits at the bottom of the ocean. That, that, that is this mass of peace that even when life, even when decisions, even when your own emotions or your mental health comes to affect the surface level of your peace, your peace is never actually deeply affected. Yes, God, I am hurt. I'm I'm doubting. I'm broken. I'm struggling, but I am not destroyed. I'm not completely left alone. I am not abandoned because my peace is found here. This is the kind of peace that Jesus says, I want to give you peace. So second question then is, where do we find this peace? (laughs) You're like, give me some of that, Jesus. So where do we find it? Read with me here, verse 28. 
highlight this last little part. It says, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said what? I am thirsty. I am thirsty. And, and when he says that, you think, of course he's saying he's thirsty. He is being crucified under the near eastern sun. And if you know anything about that and, and crucifixion and how absolutely broken you are at that point, dying, as many would do, from just exhaustion and, and, and loss of fluids, it is a horrible way to die. So yes, I'm sure that Jesus is thirsty. But the issue is, up to this point, under all the physical stress and hurt Jesus has experienced, he has not so much as opened his mouth once to complain. Not once. When he was blindfolded and beaten in his face by a group of Roman soldiers, not once did he say something. When he was scourged with this cat o' nine tails, these, this, this, this whip that has all these different almost thongs on it and it's got all these metal and bone elements embedded into it and it literally leaves your back looking like raw meat. He did not say one thing. When they took this crooked crown that they had you know, just put together and they, and they forced it into his brow and into his temple, he did not say a single thing. And when they drive into his hands and into his ankles, these old, these crooked and rusted nails into a piece of wood, the Bible says he did not once complain. It's as if he had just submitted to it. He knew that he had to do this. So why now suddenly does Jesus say, I thirst? It's because if you've been reading the book of John with us, you'll know that he's speaking about something much deeper than physical thirst. Because all over the Bible, thirst is this picture of a life where I'm trying to get from other things what I can only get from God. And therefore, I'm always thirsty. I'm always in a place of, of feeling less than in fact, famously, Psalm 42 says what? As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I long for you. I thirst for God, the living God. And the psalmist is not saying that, you know, if I just have some vague belief in a God, who doesn't believe in God? You know, who doesn't believe in him in some way at least? Even just recently reading some of the stats from, from the US, people, and, and, and even in Europe, people who say, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, 72% of them still believe in some kind of higher power. So everyone has some kind of belief in God, but the psalmist says, I don't just want to believe in God in some way, I want to know God. I want to experience God. I want to meet God. I want to commune with God, and if not that, it will feel like my soul is dying of thirst. I can have everything I've ever wanted in my career, sex, status, money, my kids are making all the right choices, and yet I feel like I am dying. He says, I thirst. So when Jesus says, I thirst, he's not speaking about physical pain. It's a picture of what he's really going through on the cross. Because this is not like what Josephus says, just another wretched death, like thousands before him. Jesus is experiencing something on this cross that no person ever has and no person ever will. Because Jesus is getting what the whole human race has built up and deserved. For our evil and our brokenness and our hatred and our deception and our doubt and our rebellion and, our, and our, our helplessness, for our thirst, all of that is being put on Jesus. 
The one who is without sin is becoming something like sin on the very cross. We have no idea cosmically what's happening here, but it's like a thousand suns are beating down on Jesus in this moment. He is taking up everything that is wrong in the human heart. He's paying for our brokenness and sin. He's drawing the enemy and everything he has to throw at him upon himself. He is thirsting. He's dying of spiritual thirst. Why? So that you and I would never have to thirst again. He's saying, I'm taking that very depth of brokenness in your soul so that you would never have to experience that again. Yes, superficial, surface level peace might be challenged in your heart, but the mass of your peace, I guarantee in myself, I give it to you. So where do we find this peace? We find it in the ongoing work the potentially completed work, the almost there work, and Jesus says, you find it in the finished work of God on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. For what? For you, for me. That's where I find this peace. Because even then, the things that would rob me of my peace and day-to-day life, they cannot touch what Jesus has done, accomplished for you. That's why Romans 5, 1 so famously says, Therefore, since we have been, we have been, past tense, if you're a Christian here today, justified, just as if you never experienced the brokenness, you never had that dislocate from the Father, just as if you never sinned, you never rebelled, you never hated, you never doubted, justified by faith, We have peace with God. We have, not you can have, not you might have, not if you try hard, you have peace with God in Jesus. So my third question to us then is, how is this peace protected? How is it it kept? I do not feel like I lose it all the time. It just seeps out of me. Like what I experience, I started being honest. Maybe you are starting to be honest in your own heart as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. How is this peace protected? Read with me. Highlight these two thoughts in this verse. Verse 35, it says, He who testified, John is speaking about himself. He was at the foot of the cross. He was walking with Jesus for three years. He says, He who saw this has testified So that what? You, reading this book the last couple of weeks with us, so that you may also believe. He says his testimony, John's testimony is true. And he says of himself, I know that I'm telling the truth. Friends, if this morning you think that this is airy-fairy hope, it is just trying harder, it is believing the best, it's thinking that the glass is half full, that's what religion is, it's just ignoring the issues and having a positive, upbeat attitude, you are missing what John is saying. John is saying this peace is not found in some airy-fairy cloud up there, some task that you accomplish, some you know, expedition you go on, some prayer that you pray. He's saying, I was there. When that man who claimed to be God said, it is finished, I heard it. I heard it. I saw it. This book of John has the, it has the feeling of eyewitness testimony all over it. All over it. 
I'll give you one or two examples. Scholars just find these things everywhere. It's, it's these little details as John is writing as someone who was there, not as hearing things hundreds of years later, making up facts, all these little details in the book of John that adds nothing to the great narrative, but it just has this, this ring of someone who's, who's thinking about being right there in the face of the action. Things like when he says he thinks about the actual smell of the perfume when the woman breaks open the jar to anoint the feet of Jesus. Or when he says the loaves that were used to feed the multitudes, he remembers that as being barley specifically. Or when he says, you know, Jesus' tunic that they rip off of him and, and they want to divide between them as he's getting crucified, he remembers that it had no seam. It was this one-piece tunic. Or when he was greeted and he enters into Jerusalem, he says that it wasn't just any kind of branch. It was these palm branches. You know, John says, I was there. I stake my life on it. I was there. I saw it. And so why does he then write the good news according to John? His whole thesis, we'll get to it next week, John 20, 31. He says, but these are written. I've given my life to write this down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, that he is the Son of God, the one who shows us the heart of God, and that by believing, putting your faith, your hope, your trust in what he has done, that you might have a new leaf in life, you might try harder, you might go to church a bit more, you might buy, be a good person, you might you know, maybe not sleep around and curse as much and not smoke. No, he says that by believing, you may have Zoe life in his name. By believing, you would have life. Friends, what am I saying? I'm saying, where is this peace kept? It's kept in the fact that this happened historically 2,000 years ago, and it happened without you having anything to do with it. It happened outside of you. And that is the most confronting and comforting thing you can hear this whole morning. That what Jesus did, what I believe God did in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, it happened outside of you. And therefore, you can do nothing about it. You cannot change it, break it, lose it. You cannot transform it. Nothing that you do can alter what has been done because it happened outside of you. It's not some airy-fairy cloud idea. It is historical acting of God in the world. And why is that confronting? Because it means that, as C.S. Lewis says, if every single person were to go blind tonight, the sun will still shine tomorrow. If every single person today said, I reject this idea of Jesus, it doesn't change one inch of what God did. It's confronting because I realize this happened whether I like it or not. The only choice I have is do I reject this Jesus or do I receive this Jesus in faith? But how comforting is this? Because it means, again, it happened outside of you. It's not your performance. It's done. He has done it. It happened 2,000 years ago before you were born. It was done. When you die, it will be done. 100,000 years from now, it will be done. You cannot lose it, change it. You cannot break it. It is done. It happened outside of you. John says, I was there. I was there. This peace is protected because it happened outside of you. And what is that peace that's protected? Verse 30, highlight this, so crucial. This is like, this is the whole book of John in one phrase. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what? It is finished. 
is finished. Many of you Bible people will know that in Aramaic, it's just this one phrase called tetelestai. It is finished. It's done. And this word tetelestai was actually used in commerce. When you would fully pay up a bill in the ancient Near East, you would write this phrase on it, paid, full, accomplished, done. So they have all these things they've dug up. Just like random bulls paid in the Roman world with this, this phrase inscribed on it, tetelestai, it's finished. So when Jesus cries out, no one hearing that voice had any doubt about what he was trying to say. And because of that, we have one of the weirdest paradoxes in all of human history, because by all standards, this Jesus is absolutely helpless. He's, he looks pathetic. He's broken, tortured, he's nailed to a cross. He can't even scratch his own nose if he wants to. And in this absolutely helpless and pathetic state, you know what this Jesus says, his last words are? I have done it. It is done. In fact, the book of Mark says that it was this cry from Jesus. It wasn't a whimper like, oh, it's done. Finally, this, this ordeal is over. I can die. No, he says, he cried out, it is finished. That is Jesus. In the most helpless moment of his life, he said, it is accomplished. It is done. I have done it forever. May all of eternity and all of creation, seen and unseen, hear the cry of God on a cross saying it is done. This is what he comes to do. And what has he accomplished? Keep reading the scripture. Please write it down if you don't have it yet. Get that tattoo on your wife's forehead if you need to. But 1 Peter 3, 18 says what? For Christ suffered, yes, for sins, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That you might walk your way to God, pray your way to God, give your way to God, serve your way to God. No, that he might bring you to God. It is finished. It is finished. That those who would put their faith, trust, hope in him, that he would bring you. What is he saying? He said there was an infinite chasm between mankind and God. And I have in my death, tetelestai, I have walked every single inch to bring you to God. It is done. Religion says achieve, do, work, perform. And if you do that well enough, maybe God will love you, bless you, secure you. He will accept you. But the gospel says... It has been achieved. And if I put my faith in that, I am already fully known and loved and accepted. And that begins to change me from the inside out. But just one or two last thoughts here is I think you're saying, listen, Joe, I'm a Christian. I know this stuff. But there's a massive difference between knowing something and believing something. Believing it. How many doctors smoke? Because they know a whole bunch of things, but they don't believe those things. How many of us drive without a, a safety belt on? Because you see horrendous pictures of people flying through windshields. We know things, but we don't believe some of those things. Let me give you one or two examples of people maybe sitting here this morning, like me, and you, you're not believing yet. Because Jesus says, it is finished, it's done, 
And what is he in a sense saying? He says, please don't add. Don't add to something that is finished. Don't even try and add to it. Imagine, imagine that Elon Musk decides he's going to buy the Mona Lisa. So it's, it's like invaluable, but I'm sure he has enough money. Even invaluable, Elon Musk can cover at this point. So he buys the Mona Lisa and he flies to South Africa and he comes to your door and he opens the door and he says, there you go. I am gifting you the Mona Lisa. You can put it in your bathroom on the door. You can have the Mona Lisa. And imagine the first thing that you do is you take out some crayons. And so I just think it's just like a little, I don't know, that smile just needs like a little dimple kind of in it just to make it just a little, just the background just needs a little bit more, just, you know, just something zest. Can you imagine the art world screaming at you? No, don't do that. You cannot add to perfection. Don't add to something that is complete, that is whole. Jesus is crying out and he says, I have done it. Don't add to it. Don't add to it. How are some of us adding to it? Maybe the first person who's adding to it is you are trying to become a Christian. And the way that you are doing that is you're saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be a Christian because I realize I have so royally stuffed up my life. I've screwed up my life completely, but I hear this Jesus stuff is cool because he forgives you and you have a whole extra chance in life, whole new chance. So now I'm gonna be the person I always knew I could be. I'm gonna be the man or the husband. I'm gonna be you know, the woman, the, the career woman. Now I'm gonna do it right. And Jesus is saying, please hear me. Yes, grace, forgiveness. Is that anything less than a second chance? Of course not, but it is so much more. It's not a second chance for you to now do it right, to prove that you are whole. He is your wholeness. It's not you trying harder now to be worthy. He's saying, I am your worthiness forever. It's just a lesson. It is done. Don't add. Because this religion thing, if you see it as a second chance, you will burn out. Two years, three years, four years, five years, praying, chanting, going to church, serving, you will be fried because you're trying to add. But maybe for the Christians, I think some Christians, they've put your faith in Christ, but this Christian thing's not really going all that well. And the reason is you are trying to add. You don't believe that it is finished. You know that it's finished, but you don't believe. You don't live as if it is finished. So one version of that is some of us always feel inferior. You always feel inferior. You always feel inadequate and helpless and unworthy. And I walk around spiritually with my leg between my, you know, my tail between my legs. And, and I always feel like, God, I know that I, I know that I'm such a sinner. I'm such a failure. I'm never enough. And it's like Jesus is crying out from the cross with love saying, you cannot make yourself beautiful. Because I have given up my beauty so that you would be radiatingly beautiful before the Father. I've given it to you. How can you ever say that I am unworthy? I am your worth. You don't have to walk around with your shoulders rolled over spiritually. You can have the confidence that comes from knowing the Father smiles over your life eternally because of Jesus. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. <laughs> do you believe that? And maybe lastly, 
other Christians, it's not that you are inferior. It's that you're always superior. And it makes you bitter and angry. Are you the kind of person that just can't be around people that just don't live right? They just believe the wrong things. They do the wrong things. They do immoral things, hurtful things. They sleep around and they curse and they, and they smell weird and they do things that I don't approve of and they listen to the kind of music that I don't think is good and they, they dress in weird ways and you, you're so frustrated with these kinds of people. What's happened is I see myself morally superior to others. But if I know that if not by the grace of this God, I am absolutely lost and broken, I will never put myself above anyone. Our church will be filled with black, white, young, old, the tattooed and the untattooed, the loud and the quiet, the introvert and the extrovert. We would have people from all backgrounds and cultures who look different, speak different, eat different, think differently, because we are not here because we are superior. We are here because of Jesus saying, Teta Lestai, it is finished. Don't add. You will be so bitter when you are working hard at this Christian thing, look at what I'm doing, I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm living, I'm reading Bible, and God is not giving me the kind of life that I deserve. It's because you're adding. He's saying it's finished. I love you. I've given myself for you. Don't add to it. Rather, in closing, I just want all of us just to hear what Colossians 1.19 says. It says, for God was pleased he was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, how did he do that? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Yes, once you were alienated and hostile to God in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. This is peace. <laughs>